Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Every person in the world lives out of what they believe. Every person, no matter what they believe about ultimate things, uh, whether they're an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist or an irreligious, moralistic person, uh, a New Age spiritualist, every person, it doesn't matter what their blend of belief is, every person lives out of what they ultimately believe to be true. All people do what they ultimately believe is true. And obviously it's not that neat and tidy and we can't have nice little categories for everything because human beings are dynamic people. We're not static people. We're always growing and changing and morphing in our understanding of things. But overall, our actions follow our foundational beliefs about what is true, what we believe to be true. So what we believe is evidenced then in the way that we live. This is because every one of us, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether by specific design or by sort of a cultural default, uh, every single person who considers what it means to be human, every person has a foundation of belief. It's hidden in our lives at times. A hidden foundation of belief under the surface where what we really believe is governing the way that we live. All people have this hidden foundation, every single person. It's how we decide what to do or what not to do. It's how we decide what is right or what is wrong, what is moral or what is immoral. And here's the thing about that hidden foundation. It's basically the authoritative operating system of our life. It's founded on who or what or where that authority is derived from. And so we take authority and we build an operating system around it, and that becomes the belief foundation that we hold. And the way that we believe and what we believe is evidence and it comes out of our lives by the way that we live. So all people do what they ultimately believe is true, but that truth is based on what they ultimately believe to be authoritative. That truth is based on the authoritative story or assumption in a person's life. And so what that means is that in our actions, right, what we do, that means our actions are based on what we believe to be true. But what we believe to be true comes from an authoritative story that we have received or a set of concepts that we give mental assent to that help us to make sense of the world. All people do what they believe to be true. And what they believe to be true is based on what they believe to be the authoritative story that you can explain the world through. Everybody has an authoritative story they believe that shapes how they live. Let me me say it another way. I could say our doing is based on our believing 
which is based on our being. So our doing is based on our believing, which is based on our being. Now, because I think that's true of every single human being ever born, I think that's true of every single human being from any place in the world, I think that every single one of us has an authoritative internal operating system. And because I think that, I want us to look at the text through a bit of that lens today. I want us to look at the authority of Jesus. I want us to look at our hidden foundations. And I want us to see the intent of the sermon. The authority of Jesus, our hidden foundations, particularly our hidden foundations of belief. Our, the authority of Jesus, our hidden foundations, and the intent of of the sermon. That's how we're going to process the text. Let's look first at the authority of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was finished preaching the most compelling sermon that had ever been preached, I think the most compelling sermon that's ever been preached in the history of the world, the listeners, it says, were astonished. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so it says that they were astonished. And astonished is a strong word, but I actually don't think the word astonished is strong enough to explain or convey the true sense of dumbfoundedness or speechlessness that they had upon hearing Jesus teach. Jesus finished preaching, like I said, the most compelling sermon that they'd ever heard, and his listeners were rocked to the core, like they got slapped upside the head by the strong hand of truth and, and love, and they just received it, I think, physically in that way. That's what that word is pointing at. They were astonished. It was like they got smacked upside the head by the truth of what Jesus was there to teach. So yes, they were astonished, but I want you to notice what they said in their astonishment. In, in verses 28 and 29, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Okay, the crowd had sat there, they had listened intently to what he was saying, and they were astonished or dumbfounded or speechless or thunderstruck. They were astonished at what they had heard him say, and having heard him say what he said, their basic response was, who is this guy? It's not just what he said, it's, it's the way he said it. It wasn't just the compelling substance of his words that effectively drew them in and gripped them and caused them to listen with astonishment as their response. It was the compelling nature of who he was. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the religious leaders they were used to. The religious leaders they were used to, they would say things like this. They would say, you have heard it said, and they would reference Moses or the prophets or somewhere else in the Old Testament or even some of the teachers within their particular school of rabbinical thought. The rabbis of the day had written documents on how to understand the teaching of Scripture, and they would say, you have heard it said, and then they would quote some other authoritative source. It's not how Jesus taught. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He taught with authority. He wasn't appealing to anybody else's teaching. He wasn't appealing to another school of thought. He was giving, he was giving his listeners the truth. It's why they said he spoke with authority. See, the scribes, the, the teachers of religious law that are referred to here, they, they taught um, by authority, with borrowed authority. 
Jesus spoke with authority. And there's a difference. One of the differences, if you want to hang a right in your Bible and go to Matthew 23, is that the scribes there in the text, it says they preach but do not practice. There was a lack of authority in the message that was delivered by them as religious teachers because they were just giving lip service to things. But it wasn't followed up in the way they lived. See, Jesus taught them about life in the kingdom of heaven, not with any kind of borrowed authority, but he taught with an original authority. Tim Keller said he didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in the way the teachers of the law did. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author, and it left them dumbfounded. He spoke with authority, yes, but that does not mean that the tone of his preaching was authoritative in the way that we might maybe reduce authority down to. He wasn't angry or bold or firm. It wasn't talking about tone in that way. It means that he spoke with authority, the authority of the author, the only one who could bring the truth to bear, the original intent in that way. He's talking about uh, the, the way to be human and the way that redemption works, but he's bringing that teaching as the author. He spoke with authority. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking authoritatively about the way things are supposed to be, the way things will be in his kingdom. He's speaking with authorial clarity. He was teaching them about the way of life in the kingdom of heaven as only the king himself could teach. See, this passage is actually an invitation to something. The whole of the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to something. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's an invitation into a way of being. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's a way to conceive of a way of being in Jesus' world, under Jesus' lordship, having Jesus as your Savior. It's an invitation to you to consider what it might look like to embody the nature of his kingdom. It's Jesus' call for us to come to him and to follow him. It's a call for us to enter into an entirely new way of being doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've previously believed. It's actually a call to envelop yourself in the story of Jesus, in the way of Jesus. It's an invitation to find him to be the authority in your life. He is the embodiment of that authoritative story that gives meaning and shape to what you believe and how you live. What I want you to see is that it's the invitation uh, to, to become It's the invitation to become part of the people of God, and it means that you are now part of a different story. And that different story revolves around the life and the ministry and the finished work of Jesus. This new story changes everything about the way we understand our lives. Uh, Alistair McIntyre quite famously said, I can only understand the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part. Uh, One scholar commenting on that McIntyre quote said, without an understanding of the story in which we find ourselves, we lack direction and purpose. We do not know what to do next. We do not even understand what we're doing now. And that's because the authoritative story of Jesus shapes what we believe and what we believe is revealed in the way that we live. Without an understanding of the story in which we find ourselves, we lack direction and purpose. Do we understand how we have come to follow Jesus? 
Do we hear his invitation to us to follow him? Have we made his kingdom our home? Do we understand his authority? Because the authority of Jesus defines our being. That's the first point, the authority of Jesus. But second, let's look quickly at our hidden foundations. Verse 24 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We've got two contrasting pictures here, two contrasting households, two contrasting people, and man, does this contrast uh, speak to and preach to our hearts. The first thing it says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine, uh, that's the part that's emphasized in the original Greek manuscript of Matthew's gospel, these words of mine. That's the emphasis here. Again, I'm talking about his authority. They're Jesus' words that we are heeding. Anyone who hears these words of mine, see, he is different and his teaching and his words is different. The Sermon on the Mount is different than anything that had ever been proclaimed before. The original intent is here. These words of mine. Verse 24 says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man whose house is built on the rock. Verse 26 says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. Um, In the letter of James, picking up on this, and I think commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be hearers of the word. No. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, if you hear but do not do, you've deceived yourself into thinking that you have aligned your life with Jesus, that you are standing upon the foundation of Christ. Lots of people have heard, and Jesus is putting a very clear call of this way or that way, just like we saw in the text last week. Is it this way or that way? He is saying, you build your house, you hear my words and obey them, you're building your house on the rock. You hear my words and do not obey them, you're building your house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, your house will be carried away. You'll be counted with the fools. The defining feature of our faith here is not hearing but doing. They both hear the words of Jesus. They both build a nice house that looks the same on the outside, if I could say it like that. They both have the same storm come along. Verse 25 says, The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house. The difference is the foundation they built on. And the foundation is hidden until the storm comes. The foundation is not revealed until the storm comes and reveals it. Hearing the words of of Jesus is doing them and, and doing them. That's the wise house on the rock. Hearing the words of Jesus and not doing them is the foolish house on the sand. And so please hear me. You may have heard the words of Jesus. I can promise you that the storms will come in life, and I can promise you that the judgment at the end of the age will also reveal. See, the defining feature of your endurance 
in the storms is your obedience to doing what Jesus says. Storms in life reveal the hidden foundations of belief. These houses looked the same from the outside until the storms came. And when the storms came, the foundation was revealed. See, storms in life reveal the hidden foundations of that internal authoritative operating system that you're working with. What you really believe comes out in the crisis, in the storm. So Christ said, have you built your life on obedience to the authoritative teaching of Jesus, who is ever-loving and immovable and steadfast, full of grace and mercy? Have you heard his call as he invites you to come into his story, to have your life redefined in light of who he is and what he has done? See, he will pull you out of the mess that you're in. When the storms of your life come and they wash away the house that you built, that you thought you were building in the right way, that you realize you built on the sand, I'm just telling you, there's Jesus with his arms open to scoop you up. When the storms of life come and you actually find that everything around you crumbles and you, you don't have the foundation you thought you had, that's not Jesus rejecting you, that's Jesus inviting you to come and find the true and better story. To enter in with him into what he has for you. Hear his words and do them and build your house on the rock. And when the storms of life come, you will withstand. We've looked at the authority of Jesus. Secondly, we've looked at our hidden foundations. What's there will be revealed in the times of trial. But third, what about the intent of the sermon as a whole? The intent of the sermon. See, the intent of the Sermon on the Mount is doing the teaching of Jesus. The intent of the Sermon on the Mount is doing the teaching of Jesus. At the very beginning of the message, I said, our doing is based on our believing, which is based on our being. See, our being is defined, or maybe I could say it better, redefined by finding ourselves within the story of Jesus. This means that we have believed in his life and death and resurrection and what he has accomplished on our behalf. It means that we are defined and indeed redefined in our very being and identity by the person and work of Jesus. Our believing is the hidden foundations and our doing is the overflow of what we believe. Our being leads to our believing, which is evidenced in our doing. The intent of the Sermon on the Mount is doing the teaching of Jesus. All people do what they ultimately believe is true. Whether their truth that they hang on to is true or not true, all people do what they ultimately believe is true. What we believe is evidenced in the way we live. So what is Jesus aiming at here? What is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Now, believe it or not, through the last 2,000 years of Christian history, there's debate over the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' new kingdom manifesto for what life in his kingdom ought to look like. I don't think it's a theoretical document. I don't think it's for a select group of Christians. I don't think it's an ideal that's supposed to make you try harder but not really work to achieve or obey. I don't think it's only about the attitude of your heart and the actions don't really matter, are inconsequential. I don't think it's only meant for the future as though we're living in some kind of age now where this isn't applicable yet. I think this is meant to be lived. 
I think it's meant to be obeyed. I think the intent of the sermon is to do the teaching of Jesus. See, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of heaven and how when we obey Jesus, we can live lives that glorify him in magnificent ways. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is establishing what it looks like to to understand uh, what it looks like where he is king. The kingship of Jesus is the extension of his rule. And Jesus did not come and live and teach and die and rise from the grave so that we could remain unchanged and untransformed. He came so that the new creational realities of his life and death and resurrection would take hold now in the moment where we as a community of people who know him are so transformed by the truth of the gospel and what he has accomplished on our behalf and what he has promised yet to do where we're so transformed to that that we embody and obey it. That's what I think he's doing. The kingship of Jesus is the extension of his rule where people say things like this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a kingdom manifesto of what it looks like when we live our lives aligned with the way of Jesus. Jesus intended to teach that he was the only way to be united with his Father in heaven, that he was the fulfiller of the law, that he came to fulfill and explain and embody the fulfillment of and the explanation of the law and what it meant to live according to God's will. Jesus intended to teach that the heart of the matter was actually the matter of the heart. That he's worried not just about murder, but about anger. Not just about adultery, but about lust. Not just about divorce, but about faithfulness. Not just about oaths, but about truth speaking. Not just about what's fair, but about nonviolent responses to injustice. Not just about loving your friends, but loving your enemies. Jesus had a different way for us to give and to fast and to pray, not in dead religion and outward external acts that are not connected to the heart, but because he has has made us alive in him, we now give and fast and pray in totally transformed ways. We don't need to trust in wealth. We don't have to be anxious. We don't need to judge without love. We can pray with boldness because he's our father. And when we obey him, when we obey him, he's glorified. And we obey him when we treat our neighbor as we would ourselves. Do you know him? 
Do you walk with him? Do you seek to obey him? Is it your pleasure to serve your king? Is your house established on the rock? Do you want to serve him as new kingdom people here and now? Do you want to embody the kingdom of Jesus in every facet of life? Christ City, I dream about what the city of Vancouver would look like in new creation with the effects and consequences of sin removed where we are just embodying the kingdom realities of Jesus in fullness, unhindered by any other obstacles. I long for that. I consider that. I think about what that would look like. And I dream about what that might look like here and now, even as we do our best to embody those kingdom realities in Vancouver as it is in heaven. It's the intent of the Sermon on the Mount that we obey him. The reality is we live in a broken, messed up world of pain and sorrow. Perhaps more fiercely and strongly felt this week, maybe for some, than any week in their life before. Because of Jesus, we have something to say to that world. We've got a new story to invite others into. Bishop Leslie Newbegin said the most important contribution which the church can make to a new social order is to be itself a new social order. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Our being, our believing, our doing are all deeply interconnected. A new social order founded on the authority of Jesus as our king is what the world most needs now. As you consider these things and others today with your house church, if you're gathering with your house church online or you're already gathered, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate the reality that Christ is crucified and risen, that he laid his life down in our place and for our sin. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Your house church leaders are going to lead you into communion today. The celebration of that reality that Christ's work on our behalf is sufficient for our salvation because we are invited to come to him by grace through faith in Christ alone. Our Heavenly Father has made a way for us to enter in, and so we do so with repentance. We consider the work of our own hearts. Are we right with all people? Are we right with people to the best of our abilities? Have we worked to overcome offenses and reconcile in the gospel? The gospel is a gospel of reconciliation, and so relationally we can come together and extend forgiveness to one another as we extend repentance to one another. We can do that as a community. That's a communal reality for us who are in Christ. But as we celebrate communion today, we do so mindful of the sufficient work of Jesus on our behalf. See, the way of the kingdom of Jesus, the way of life that he has invited us into, the story that we have been invited into and in which we participate is a story of the way of the cross. It's a story of the reality that new life comes out of death. And so for you who are in seasons that may feel like seasons of death, times of death, circumstances of death, just be assured that if you've placed your hope and faith in Jesus, that there's new life on the other side. There is new life on the other side of death. In John's gospel, it says that unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it will not be able to bear fruit. 
That was speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection. Christ was crucified, Christ has died, but Christ is risen. And every time we celebrate communion, we're celebrating and proclaiming the reality that this gospel that saves us is true and endures until he returns. Every time we celebrate the gospel through communion, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the journey we've had through the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for the beauty of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the real encounters we've had with the real Christ. Not some sort of figment of our imagination, not some sort of idea from scholars, not some sort of philosophical concept that's supposed to teach us how to live better, but an encounter with the teaching of the real Jesus. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to invite others to join this way of life. Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you for your work on our behalf. And we thank you for the promise that you're with us. We pray that we would revel in all of this truth today and that we would glorify you in every area of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.